him and for him. He is before all things, and him all from among the dead, and that in everything he might have supremacy. For God has pleased us to have things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present your holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that have been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Lord, as we open your word this morning, um, I'm just aware of uh, the happenings in this church, the world around us, um, that there are, are, are many things on our hearts. And so we want to come before you just for a minute to lay them before you. Lord, we're grateful that you welcome us in. We're grateful that you've given us your gospel. Lord, we're grateful that we can come to you with our burdens and with our needs. Lord, we are not holy like we ought to be. We haven't done the things that you've asked us to do. We've failed to do many of the things uh, you've commanded. And we've done the things you've asked us not to do. And so we come before you repenting. We come before you humbly. We come before you asking for your restoration and your healing. And Lord, especially, we come before you asking that you would speak. We need you. And as we open your word, I pray that you would move powerfully through it. That your spirit would fill this place. I pray that you'd prepare my heart to learn from this text. And I pray for our church as we're beginning these early weeks of uh, going through the new mission and vision. We pray for unity. Of course, we're going to feel emotion in the system. We miss Robert and Cindy. We, we look back at the times before fondly. But Lord, as we look ahead with excitement, I pray, God, that you would make this church firmly united around the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bring others into our midst to hear this good news. And we pray all these things together the way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you're just joining us uh, this week, 
uh, this, this next nine weeks, we are taking some time to go through our mission statement, our, our values, unpack uh, what is going on at, at Center Church. And each week, we are looking at the scripture and asking the question, what has God called us to do? What does he value? And what will our church look like if we're living out of his values in 2024 and beyond? And, and my hope is that no matter if you've been here for 50 years or 15 minutes, that you'll be excited as we open the word today and, and learn about what God has in store. And not just for this little church, but for you and for your life and for our community and, and for the world around us. And so if you recall, last Sunday, we un, uh, unveiled our new missional mandate. We just looked at it at the 9 o'clock hour as well. It says that Center Church is making room for everyone to experience joyful, life-transforming connection to Jesus and his people. And that's our mission because that's God's mission. That's what he's doing, and so that's what we're going to be doing and now for the next six weeks, starting with this one, we're going to hone in on some of our core values that bolster and hold up this mission that we have. So, so it might be helpful to think about the mission statement, like what has God called us to do, and the core values are who are we supposed to be as we carry out this mission. And so, here we go, without further ado... Our first core value is that we are gospel-centered. Now, hopefully nobody fainted or fell out of their seat after they heard such a radical first core value. Um, actually, I hope this is what the experience is like. I hope you're kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, the, the idea is we're not trying to, to do something totally radical, but we're trying to say this is who we are as a church. These are the things that we value. Um, and this, but, but as we pull out these values and as we highlight them, we hope that it's going to bring a sense of vitality, a sense of purpose and focus as we move forward pursuing our mission. Okay, so let's talk about it. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? Um, I want to talk about this from a few different angles this morning. And the first, here they are. Gospel-centered churches, I got three characteristics. First, gospel-centered churches have a big Jesus. Secondly, gospel-centered churches live like sons and daughters. And finally, gospel-centered churches see the kingdom come. Okay, so gospel-centered churches, they have a big Jesus. Um, I've shared this before, but if you don't know, I, I came to faith when I was in sixth grade. My family, they weren't really active church attenders. That wasn't a big part of my life, but they enrolled me in this private Christian school, and when I was at that school, I heard the gospel, and one night, I went home, and by myself, in my room, I prayed a, a, the most simple sinner's prayer you could ever imagine. It was, Jesus, come into my life, or whatever that teacher said it is that you do. <laughs> and he did. Amazingly, he did. And from that moment, I have been assured that Jesus is my Savior. He has been walking with me. He has been extraordinarily faithful to me throughout my life. But since that time, there have also been these pivotal moments where I have come to understand more of the gospel, where I have come to realize who God 
is and what the gospel means in my daily life. And so um, that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. Um, if my, I don't know what just happened here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I am, uh, let's see, hold on, sorry guys. This is just like in line with what's going on in my brain right now. Um, yeah, here we go. Um, so when I was talking about the gospel becoming more real in my life, one of the things that stands out to me actually is, it's random, I don't even know if this is worth sharing, but there was a moment when I had first been married, uh, and I woke up in our little tiny apartment, and the, the wind was blowing through the trees outside of our apartment window, and I remember just waking up and looking into the leaves as they blew, and just it dawning on me, the gospel is really good news. Like, it's, it's really good news. It's, it's a lot better than I used to think. And I'm hoping that as we talk about it this morning, maybe some of you guys will, will get that same sense. Because when I say the word, when I say the words the gospel, uh, the basic facts of the gospel, they're pretty simple, right? One way to tell that story of the gospel is from the vantage point of what God has come to do in creation, right? The, the creation fall redemption restoration outline it tells us that god created the world and it was good and it was perfect but then through humanity's rebellion sin entered the world and that's why now we look around and this world seems so messed up and so broken and our lives often feel lacking and so Jesus came to redeem the broken world. He lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross, and he took the penalty for that rebellion. And then the end of it is, and one day he's going to come again, and he's going to restore the whole of creation to be the way it should be. And so all we have to do is to turn from our rebellion and to trust him by faith. Another way people tell this is, you know, I used to work in campus ministry for a little while. And so I always had to use this little pamphlet called The Four Spiritual Laws. Maybe some of you are familiar with that one. But it has the, a more personal angle for telling the gospel. It says, law number one is uh, there is a God. He is good. He loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. But number two, we're sinful and fallen. And no amount of good deeds, nothing we could ever do would ever be able to reach up to that level of holiness where, where God exists. And so... Part three, Jesus, he comes down in his love and his mercy to pay the penalty for our sins and to live a life in our place. And so then law four is if we turn away from our sin and we turn towards Jesus, then we can be with him forever. Now, both of these tellings of the gospel show up in our passage, right? In verse 20 and verse 21, you can find it talks about that he came to reconcile everything to himself. And in verse 21, it, it says that, uh, uh, you know, I also left my Bible somewhere. So let me use this big, giant Bible right here on the pulpit, uh, and we'll see how things go. Um, you know, every pastor has this nightmare where he's, like, flipping through the Bible and can't find the passage, but it's right here. Um, 
Verse 21, it says you were alienated from God and you were his enemies uh, because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ. So there's this, you see that personal dynamic, but then you also see in verse 20 that he came to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or things on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we got both of those in this little passage that we just read. But what I'm running through right now, I'd, I'd call all of this like a bare bones gospel presentation. These are, are the facts. And even for years, when I was a missionary, when I was uh, doing campus ministry, when I was starting to get into professional ministry, I think I often thought of this narrative I told you as important news, but I didn't really know if, that it was good news. It was important news that people needed to know, a way to keep you out of hell, Important news that you needed to know so that you could be with God. It was important news that you needed so that you could have your sins forgiven. But that morning, around that time, in my apartment, something started to change. I started to, to have that realization that the good news is really good. It's really good. And, and here's what happened. I learned that we have... A big Jesus. Now, I've never had like some crazy rebellious period in my life, um, but when you come to faith young like that, by the time you're in your mid-20s, you have a long time to be a Christian. You have a long time to try to follow Jesus and live a life that glorifies and honors him, and, and by that point in my life, there was a big part of me that was kind of racked with guilt, there was this dawning realization that after all these years, in, you know, I'm going to seminary, I'm training to be a pastor, why am I not better by now? Why do I still act dishonestly sometimes? Why do I still find it so hard to trust the Lord? Why am I still anxious? Why am I still lustful? Why am I still so stubborn and, and selfish? And how come, when I do seem to get free from some of the sins I've been struggling with, it's just like there's more deeper things that those sins were hiding the whole time. What's wrong with me? That's the question that was in my head. And so let's look at this picture again. Okay, so here you have a holy God, and you have a sinful man, and you have Jesus bridging the gap. And, and when I came to faith, I really did believe this story. I understood that this was true, that Jesus was enough to reconcile me to God. But I want to show you another picture that comes from this workbook called The Gospel-Centered Life that I think is really helpful. And I don't know if you can see this really well, but, but what it says is it describes perfectly well, I think, what was happening to me and what often happens to many people in the church. That over the years... As I'm trying to walk with the Lord and I'm learning more about who he is, I realize that, that his holiness is actually much holier than I first thought it was. Right? He wasn't just this holy, but he's, he's this holy. And then I realized that my sin wasn't just this deep, but it was this deep. Right? A whole lot deeper than I could have ever imagined when I was 11 years old praying in my bedroom. And when you reach that place, well, there's only three things that can happen for you. 
Now, you can see it here on this list. Uh, on the top here is, uh, on the bottom here is pretending. You can act like you're better than you really are. You can try to minimize and excuse your sin. When you realize that, that God's really holy and you're a really big sinner, then you, you can try to, to compare yourself with others and say, well, I'm not the worst sinner. There's other people who are worse than me. You can, you can actually start to think, I'm, I'm not so bad as that. I'm not that bad at all. And you can start to carry yourself like a good person who's actually worthy of acceptance. You pretend, and you become self-righteous and arrogant, and you hide your flaws from the world. Or on the other side, <clears throat> you can <clears throat> perform. You can say, oh, no, I am such a mess. And, and God is, is so holy, I've, I've got to do something. I've got to earn his favor. I've got to join all the teams at the church, and I've got to check all the boxes, and I've got to do this and that and the other. And then when I do fail, I've got to grovel. I've got to beg and plead, and I've got to prove to him that I am, I'm, I, he didn't make a mistake when he saved me, and I really do deserve to be forgiven. I'm worthy of his acceptance. And what happens when you're living this life of performance is you get filled with misery, insecurity. You're full of fear. You have a joyless faith. Or, there's the third choice. You can have a big Jesus. I want you to hear these words one more time that we read today. Listen to how Paul describes our Savior. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven, things in heaven, things on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. You hear that description? Are you, do you get the sense that while Paul was writing that, he is just stretching human language to its very limits? That he's trying as hard as he possibly can, and the words are just barely doing the job. Well, folks, that is the Savior that God sent for you. It's true. Our sin is this deep. And, and, and our, our God is this holy. But our Jesus, he's more than sufficient for the task. He is able to save us to the uttermost. And so that means we don't have to pretend. We don't have to be self-righteous. Because he's righteous. He's plenty righteous for the both of us. And we don't have to perform we don't have to struggle and strain and hope that we'll be good enough because he is good enough. And he struggled and strained for us on the cross, and it's over. Phillips Brooks was a well-known preacher back in the 1800s. 
And mostly, if he's remembered at all today, he's remembered because he wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem. (laughs) But he was a powerful and dynamic preacher. And uh, in Boston, they ended up building this statue in memory of him next to his old church. And it's an awesome statue. Uh, It's a picture. it's, It's him standing in his pulpit. With, with Jesus standing behind him, but Jesus is like two feet taller than him. I've got a picture of it here. Jesus is, is looming over him with his hand on his shoulder. And, and, and when you look at this picture, when you look at his, his, his eyes, you can tell he's got that swagger, right? <laughs> he's got that confidence, right? He, he is a man who knows he's got a big Jesus standing behind him. One of the things that made me wake up to this realization about the goodness of the gospel was actually a pastor of mine talking about this statue. And he said, you know, this is a great statue. This this starts to communicate the purpose. But what you really need to do, what you really need to do is you need to go do this same thing and stand at the bottom of Christ the Redeemer. Then, then you might be getting close to the idea. Then, then you might start wrapping your head around the Savior that we have, how good this gospel is, this big Jesus who came to save us. See, the gospel, it is proclaiming this message that your sin is no match for your Savior. And when you start to see what the gospel really is, that yeah, it is those simple facts that we can lay out on those charts, but, but it's so much more than that. It's so much better than that. The gospel is freedom. The gospel is confidence. The gospel is joy. It is what I made you guys read a second ago in that confession of faith that John so graciously audibled for me this morning. I didn't have it before this morning. <laughs> It's this declaration that we all read together that you are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. He has set you free from the power of the enemy. He he has brought you into this new reality where nothing can come against you. Not a single hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. In fact, it says he must work all things together for your salvation. In other words, Jesus isn't surprised that you're not better, and he's not threatened in the slightest. He knew who you were before he saved you. He's not threatened by your weakness. And he certainly isn't finished with you yet. And the church that knows this, a church that knows the gospel is truly good news to share, well, that's that's a church with a big Jesus. A gospel-centered church is a church with a big Jesus at the center. Amen? The second thing I want to point out here is that a gospel-centered church is also a church filled with people who live like sons and daughters. So if the fruit of pretending that we're better than we are is self-righteousness, 
And the fruit of performing and trying to earn our salvation is this anxious fearfulness in our faith. What's the fruit of having a big Jesus? Well, verse 21, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The message is not just that Jesus bridges the gap, but it's that Jesus brings you into glory without blemish and free from accusation. That's what it says. Christ, when he came, he took our guilt so that we could ever forever stand in the presence of holy of a holy God in, in complete perfection. We're no longer alienated. We're no longer on the outside. We're no longer separated by this uncrossable distance, but instead it says we're brought in. We're brought near. We're welcomed. Scripture says that we now have this secure position with him where we're considered as his own sons and daughters. All right, I've got an embarrassing story to share. Um, my father was a salesman for most of my life, but when I got into high school, he was promoted, and he became the, the vice president of this company. And right after graduation, he agreed to let me come and work as a summer intern. Um, and so I started this job. I worked in a place that was just like a big room full of cubicles, and because I was an 18-year-old, they gave me, you know, the smallest one. A little slot that had a desk and a computer and a chair. And as I was sitting there one day, I realized that there was an enormous cubicle right next to me. And it was full of trash or whatever, other things that had gotten put in there over the years. And so I just decided, you know, I'd empty it out and just move on in there. And so <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, after a couple of weeks of being there as an intern, I'm an 18-year-old, and I have the biggest cubicle in the office, it, it didn't occur to me to ask anybody if I should do that or if it was okay because, well, because I was 18 and I lacked a lot of self-awareness, I think was probably it. But, but also, I just wasn't thinking like a person with a real job, right? I was thinking like a kid whose dad was the boss. What I mean by that was when I went into that place, I didn't go in worried. I wasn't going in anxious that I might lose my job. I, I, I knew that my place was pretty secure there. Now, I was also probably insufferable <laughs> to, to, to be around because I was so clueless about that dynamic. But, but, I, but what I want to tell you is that, that in Christ, your place is far more secure than that. And unlike me in that story... Christ has also given us this great grace to be able to see who we really are and to be honest about our, our struggles and our weaknesses. He's given us an awareness of our shortcomings so that at the same time we stand in this full confidence that we walk around without fear, uh, we also know who we are. We also know how undeserving we are of that position. And that's a powerful combination. That's actually the key to a church that's full of life. It's a people who are aware 
fully that they need a Savior. It's a people who have, have, have no questions, no doubts about how holy they really are on the inside deep down. And yet, they know they are completely and utterly secure in the loving arms of their Father. When we get the gospel like that, it means that, that we can actually start to be vulnerable with each other without fear. And, and it means we can celebrate the victories. We can, we can get excited about what God's doing in us. And it means we can be honest about our, our failings. We can support each other in our struggles. We, we don't have to hide. We don't have to worry about maybe being found out secretly somewhere. We can just tell people who we are because God knows and he's all right with it. We're not exiles. We're not orphans. Scripture says that we're his children. And the fruit that comes out of that is a church that should be filled up with people who are free and who are confident and who are joyful before their father. But also a people who are humble, who are transparent about who they really are, who, don't, who are speaking words of hope and encouragement and love to the people around them. That's what it means to, to live like sons and daughters. And then the third thing that comes out of being gospel-centered is that gospel-centered churches see the kingdom come. Gospel-centered churches see the kingdom come. Okay, so what I've been trying to say this morning is that the gospel message, it's more than just a message of salvation, but it's, it's, it's a whole lot more than that. The power of the gospel is a power that continues working in us all throughout our lives. I'm sure you've heard other preachers say it this way before, but it's not the ABCs of our faith, but it's, it's the A to Zs. It's the power that's in, at work in us. As the Holy Spirit is living in us, he's constantly testifying to this new reality that we're living in, and it changes us. Now, some of you, as we read the passage, you may have noticed that word if in there. As Paul was talking about this great new reality, he says that you have been reconciled to God. And then it says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And you might be wondering, well, what does that mean? Does, doesn't that go against everything you were just saying? That I'm secure and that I don't need to be worried? What does it mean if? Well, no. This is the same thing we're talking about the whole time. And it's simply that true faith is a faith in a big Jesus. True faith is a faith in a Jesus who saves to the uttermost. But when you have those other counterfeit versions of faith, when you have that pretending faith that's full of anxiety, when you have that performing faith that is self-righteous, that eventually those things, they start to break down. That kind of counterfeit faith, it can't last forever. It eventually withers away. It fades. It collapses. And I'm sure you've known people where you've seen that happen in their lives. But the real gospel, the real gospel with the big Jesus at the center, the real gospel where we come in as sons and daughters, that's not just important news. That's the good news. Really good news. It's, it's the good news that you can actually be excited about. It's the good news that when it starts to sink into your life, you'll wake up in the morning and you'll think, man, 
I got to tell somebody else about this. this. This is incredible. God really loves me. God's really at work in my life. He knows me, and, and I can trust him. It's a gospel that fills you with gratitude. It relieves your burdens. It transforms you from the inside out because it makes it so that, so that now your heart wants to please him with your life instead of serve him out of fear. And Paul, he hits it really hard here at the end. He says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And that's just an example number one, right? That's what happens when we know the gospel. We go out and we proclaim it. We talk about it with each other. We talk about it in our homes. We share about it in our lives. We share it, Paul says, with every creature under heaven. You know, there's so many things that have changed about this church since it started in, in 220, 258 years ago. Is that right? Think of all the things that have changed in this community. Think of all the, the I mean, there weren't even roads, cars, electricity. <laughs> but you know what hasn't changed? The gospel. Jesus hasn't changed. This is the same message that was at the center of this church's mission all the way back then. And as we move forward as a church, it's going to be the same message at the center now. And I fully expect while we start to rediscover the goodness of this message, while we start to, to reclaim it and, and proclaim it, we'll see a lot of new activity and new life coming to this church. We're going to see missionaries being sent out. We're going to see churches getting planted. We're going to be doing justice work. We're going to be feeding the poor and looking after widows and orphans. We're going to do all kinds of work that's going to improve the community around us. But I want to say, no matter what those ministries may be, this gospel is the point. This gospel is the center of everything that we're going to do. It's the center of all the ministries that will come out of this place. And, and I have every confidence in the world that as we experience the gospel working, as we see these things start to happen, then, then there's going to be stuff we've never even dreamed of taking place. People coming to faith, a new generation coming to the Lord. We're going to see baptisms we're going to see marriages being restored. We're going to see people getting freed from lifelong struggles with addiction. And who knows what else? Because a church that is centered on the gospel, a church with a big Jesus, a church where all the people in it are living like sons and daughters, well, that is a church that will see the kingdom come. So there you go. That's our first core value. We're about the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, uh, the gospel is a big thing and it's a small thing. It's a simple thing and it's incredibly complex. It's a thing that we can share in words, but Lord, we can really only truly know it once it's in our hearts. And so I praise you, Lord, for the, the great number of people here who have experienced your grace and mercy in their lives. 
And Lord, I pray that as we go forward from this place, we would become a people more and more who know that the gospel is good. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who hasn't experienced that kind of grace and mercy and welcome before, God, I ask that you'd reveal yourself now, that you would let them know that the work of Christ has fully paid, that the work is finished, that they're welcomed in. And I pray for each and every one of us as we go out of here this week that this news would change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.